Coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fourth Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. And a good morning to you. Thank you for listening. Whether it's on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, whether it's on the replay, 5 to 6 p.m., or wherever you podcast. We appreciate you doing so. Uh, there is some news about this show actually having some new turf to call home. Not that we're leaving America One Radio or AmericaOneRadio.com, but we are in talks right now to add this show to the lineup at the Progressive Voices Network. I'm pretty excited about that. And uh, I believe right now we're going to wind up in an on-demand platform on their website and app as well. Very excited about that. Uh, I'll keep you abreast of that as that comes to fruition. Just another option, another way to listen to The Ron Show. And the show and its content and its guests will see some added exposure. Really excited about that. Also really excited that later in the show we're going to speak with Chitra Raghavan from... Good Story Strategies. She is a C-suite executive and board member, strategic communication advisor, a journalist, columnist, and podcaster. She wrote an opinion piece last week in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that we featured uh, a good bit of in last week's show, speaking to the different set of rules and circumstances that powerful and ambitious women have to abide by versus their male counterpoint. That came up, of course, in discussion with the Fonnie Willis case. And there's more news on that that we'll get to in a little bit. Anyway, excited to have her on the show. No, Sheetra, not Fonnie Willis, obviously. Here's what I'm not really excited about. I'm not really excited to start with a story that is so heartbreaking. Let's roll the audio. This is heartbreaking. This is a heartbreaking time for the university. I could not disclose Lakin's name last night uh, during the news conference. As last night, the family had not been notified. But I'm here to share that we have a suspect in custody for Lakeland's murder. We are obtaining arrest warrants for Jose Antonio Ibera, 26 years of age. He lives here in Athens, but is not a U.S. citizen. He has been charged with the following, malice murder, felony murder, aggravated battery, aggravated assault, false imprisonment, kidnapping, hindering a 911 call, and concealing the death of another. He will be transported to the Clark County Jail we have also searched, uh, served a search warrant on his apartment and continue to collect evidence. There are no indications of a con continuing threat to the community related to this case at this time. I want to thank the men and women of the University of Georgia Police Department and all of our partners. This arrest was facilitated by the excellent work of both patrol officers and detectives from the University of Georgia Police Department and the athens Clark County Police Department as well as Georgia Bureau of Investigation with the assistance of federal agencies as well. In every way, it was a genuinely a team effort. That was the voice of Jeffrey Clark, police chief at the University of Georgia Friday. By Saturday morning, we got this from 11 Alive WXIA-TV. 
A 26-year-old man accused of murdering a 22-year-old nursing student on UJ's campus had his first appearance in court this morning. Good evening and thank you for joining us. I'm Latasha Givens. All new tonight, a look at the suspect, the charges he's facing, and what a Clark County judge says will happen next. 11 Alive's Erica Murphy was in court for this first appearance. So bond will be denied for today. Jose Antonio Abara will remain behind bars after Judge Donnerell Green said a higher court would have to make that ruling. This court is not authorized under Georgia law to set bond in light of these charges. Uh, however, Mr. Ibarra will have an opportunity to petition for bond before a Superior Court judge at a later date. Ibarra is facing several charges, including malice murder, kidnapping, and hindering a 911 call, all in connection with the death of Lakin Riley on Thursday. Police say they think he acted alone and doesn't have a history of violence. In recent checks of his criminal history, he does not have an extensive criminal history as far as in violence. The school also says Ibarra was never employed there. Right now, his motives aren't known with police saying that Riley's murder was simply a crime of opportunity. In the meantime, Ibarra will be kept inside the athens Clark County Jail until another court date is set. Reporting from Athens, Erica Murphy, 11 Alive News. <sighs> Tragic story, not the one you want to lead into a weekend going into with that fresh on your mind, especially if you are someone who has UGA coursing through your blood in one way, shape, form, or fashion. I'm, of course, a big sports fan, but I'm also, I think, 28-year sophomore now. Uh, yeah, I attended University of Georgia, uh, Athens, Clark County. I called it home for four or five years. Uh, I know much about that community. Of course, it's been quite a while since I lived there, so things have changed. But if there's one thing I know about Athens, Clark, and I know about the cohesiveness between the community, the college faculty and staff, and student body, it's that uh, Athens, Clark, is by and large a hospitable place for folks of Divergent ideology and background, even cultures, various states and countries around the world, all represented on that campus and throughout that community. Just a shocking story to wake up to as we head into the weekend last weekend and then come to Monday. And by now, this is predictably a hyper-partisan, back-and-forth, dickering argument fest. Can I just tell you for my part, as someone who is left of center and who believes that our immigration policy fails us as a country, fails our Border Patrol agents, fails those who live near the border, fails those who come here to seek asylum, fails those who are fleeing oppression and economic strife and starvation, drug cartels, crime, war, it fails so many and blame rests with many as well. That's not what you're going to hear or have heard for the last few days, from hardcore partisans on the right. Now, unlike conservatives and Republicans, pro-gun advocates after a mass shooting who want to tell you that now's not the time, they wasted no time in having this discussion, and I'm actually going to agree with them. It's time to have this discussion. It's past time to have this discussion. We've been having this discussion, actually, for a few weeks now in a very hearty manner from both sides of the aisle. We have a bipartisan Senate agreement on immigration reform that there are many on the left that aren't happy with, but Border Patrol agents, or at least their union, are and signed off on. And of course, because it's bipartisan, you know you have Senate Republicans involved, and because you have Senate Republicans who signed off on it, 
There's only one person keeping that immigration bill from being passed in the House and being signed by the president. And that's Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson. But this isn't the first time Republicans have balked at immigration reform. And I, I, I could sit here and, and get lost in the minutia and, and lose sight of the story in Athens, Georgia. But suffice to say, there have been many times since the year 2000 in this century that bipartisan immigration reform has sat at the table waiting for both sides to come to it and agree to it. And by and large, it's the right that balks. However, if we want to take the permissive culture of the Biden administration tangent, that's been the, 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 the precept of why border incursions have been ramping up so much under his presidential administration. It need be pointed out that on Donald Trump's final full day in office, January 19th, 2021, he approved deferred deportation for Venezuelans. I'm going to read this from thehill.com. The White House approved the deferral of deportations for some Venezuelans in an 11th hour decision before President Trump leaves office. The White House said in a memo released Tuesday, the 19th, that it is approving deferred enforced deportation, or DED, for Venezuelans. Recipients of the deferral will be able to live and work in the U.S. similar to those protected under a temporary protected status. Hear me when I say this. Jose Antonio Ibarra was not one of the Venezuelans who had his deportation deferred. He came after this 18-month cycle. And the truth is we have every right to be outraged that we live in a two-party system where we watch both like outfielders in a major league game with the game on the line and a fly ball that either could catch and both call for it and then neither call for it and the ball drops between them. Now, we may never fully know what led to such an incident where everyone who professes to have known Jose Antonio Ibarra, including his ex-wife in New York City, who said that they may have fought, but it was never physical. They'd yell at each other, but he was a pretty calm person. We may never know what led to such a grisly ending for Lake and Riley, who, by the way, hails from Cherokee County, just north of Atlanta, River Ridge High School graduate, beloved by so many. Just tragic, 22-year-old nursing student, her whole life ahead of her, goes out for a jog and doesn't return. But what worries me the most when it comes to pivoting to having a discussion about immigration reform as a result of this case is that there's going to be the predictable racing to the foxholes on either side of the spectrum and lobbing grenades back and forth and solving nothing. It's already happening. Eric Erickson's all over it. The governor released his statement. He wants answers from the Biden administration. He doesn't want answers from the Speaker of the House. Republican Mike Johnson, he just wants answers from the Biden administration. There was almost literally this six-week window where the Trump policy ended on deferred enforcement for deportations for Venezuelans, and Jose Antonio Ibarra came to the U.S., 
and the Biden administration in October of the same year actually ramping up deportations of Venezuelans back to their country and out of the United States. But you're not going to hear a lot of that from the hyperpartisan right-wing rhetoric machine. Does that absolve President Biden? Of course not. But he's a president who believes that his hands are tied by international law and by domestic policy that is underfunded and falls well short of need. And by the way, it wasn't just President Biden complaining about needing legislation. President Donald Trump said he needed it in 2018. And here's what he got with the GOP-led House and Speaker Paul Ryan. Chris, we're just looking at the vote breakdown here on this bill. And as expected, you had no Democrats crossing the line to support this bill. But looking at the final totals now, it is absolutely worse than the the more hardline conservative bill that we saw get a vote last week. Only 121 Republicans voting in favor of this. It's hard to pick uh, who has the, the more egg on their face on this, who's sort of happy and who's not. I think conservatives will see this as proof that a conservative bill is the only one that can get through the House of Representatives. And the moderates are going to leave very frustrated here. It's tough to see what they got for their efforts. They were so close on that discharge petition that would have forced a series of votes and could have potentially included votes that would have gotten Democratic support, including the DREAM Act would have been one of those things that would have gotten a vote here. So uh, a lot of talk, a lot of debate, a lot of negotiation, which everyone involved said throughout was good faith, but really leading to an exceptionally lackluster result here, even for an issue that has so bedeviled Congress. That is Garrett Hake with NBC News. Donald Trump wanted that bill passed. All caps tweeting, House Republicans should pass the strong but fair immigration bill known as Good Latte 2, in their afternoon vote today, even though the Dems won't let it pass in the Senate. Passes will show that we want strong borders and security while the Dems want open borders equaling crime when he said he needed legislation. Republicans now say the president doesn't need legislation. So which is it? The president said the very same thing in 2017 when he ended DACA. He called on Congress to act. He held a televised conference giving a speech to the American people from the Oval Office in January of 2019, addressing the nation, saying, now is the time, this is the moment, to finally secure the border and create the lawful and safe immigration system Americans and those wanting to become Americans deserve. He was looking for Congress to do something. Well, the Senate did something just last month, and the House Speaker, particularly Mike Johnson, is holding up progress. So to take our focus away from that reality, the right is going to focus on Sanctuary cities like Athens, Georgia, and its prosecutor, also New York City and its police department, and it's not cooperating with ICE. When the fact is, the very same police that the right professes to revere, that thin blue line, those same police, they don't want to have the door shut on immigrants who are here, legally or otherwise, being willing to speak on or off the record with police to solve other crimes. Neither Sandy Hook nor Marjorie Stoneman Douglas brought us the much-needed gun reforms we needed. Will the death of Lake and Riley potentially unjam the logjam in the House that gets us a vote on a bipartisan bill that brings needed immigration reform forward to this country? Obviously, it wouldn't bring Lake and Riley back, but at least her dying wouldn't have been completely in vain. I, for one, have my doubts. That's a story we'll be watching. 
Yet another wrinkle in the Fani Willis Nathan Wade saga, and Chitra Raghavan on to discuss her op ed in the AJC that spoke to that and ambitious dominant women. Later on the Ron Show. Welcome back as we headed into the weekend. Another jarring news story hit us. This from WANF TV, uh, Atlanta News First. Investigator hired to look into Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis and Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade says he found evidence contradicting their testimony in court. D.A. Willis told the court last week that she and Wade were not dating until April of 2022 after he was hired. But the private investigator says phone records show more than 2,000 calls and 12,000 texts wow. between the two. And cell phone data shows his phone near Willis's house several times in 2021. We asked a legal expert why this could be important. If they lied to the court, uh, this can be referred to the Georgia State Bar for disciplinary action. Uh, theoretically, the judge could hold them in contempt of court uh, and also uh, submit to another prosecutorial office for perjury charges. That seems unlikely, but the disciplinary by the bar seems quite likely should this be proven as a lie. All right. Two thoughts. Holy f***ing sh- The other thought is it's Clinton Lewiski all over again. It's literally the Clinton Lewinsky playbook. It wasn't so much about the act. It was about trying to make Bill Clinton so uncomfortable talking about the acts, allegedly, that he was caught in a misstep and or a lie. And that's what got him impeached in the House anyway. For Fonnie Willis, the stakes are even higher, though, because she can be, he can be as well. Nathan Waite can both be disbarred if they are found to have perjured. Now, I'm no expert on cell phone data or pings or how close to towers one would be or whatnot. For their part, the district attorney's office says uh, it's not revelatory that Nathan Wade may have been near an area of Hapeville that's full of bars and restaurants and other established businesses that he may have partaken in. But here we are again, fretting over this case and whether or not it's going to be able to stick to some sort of time frame that might lead us to a conclusion before election day. How many of y'all, show of hands, have gone from I'm fully behind Fonnie Willis. I know she's got this, too. Uh-oh, she's in trouble. Oh, she messed up, too. Okay, well, that made sense. May not be the facts, but it's hard to disprove. The cash thing. Now to, oh, my God. What did we do to deserve this? I mean, I'm, I'm right back at the, listen, you had to know you were going to be under the microscope. You had to walk a squeaky clean line, and I get it. You dragged a former governor of the state in to say he was actually approached about taking this case before Nathan Wade was offered the job. And that's all fine and well. All believable. I mean, if a former governor attests in a court of law under oath that that's what happened, then that's what happened. It's the other stuff that just hints of impropriety. And now there's the potential of perjury, which, again, could derail her and him from the case, which means that the case has to wait for a board to appoint a new district attorney, and that could take 18 months or longer. At which point, if we, 18 months down the road, are living under a second term of a President Donald John Trump, everything gets put on hold until after he's out of office. 
Okay, uh, back half of the show, we're going to speak with a woman who knows what it's like and has some insights on what it means to be a dominant and powerful and ambitious woman in today's world. Shitra Raghavan is an executive coach, strategic advisor uh, to the founders and CEOs of technology firms. She runs Good Story Strategies, former journalist with NPR, U.S. News and World Report, frequent columnist, podcast host, and appearing last week in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We're going to talk with Shitra about Fonnie Willis's circumstances, obviously. So obviously we'll get her thoughts on the hearing. She's going to explain to us what the warmth versus competence cognitive matrix is, how it affects men versus women, and how this matrix puts women in a no-win situation in every aspect of growth and leadership. Should be a fascinating conversation. Looking forward to having her on. In the meanwhile, I invite you to follow the show at Ron Show ATL. That's Facebook. That's Twitter, the X platform. That's Instagram. That is Threads, at Ron Show ATL. And we're back in just a few on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. This is the Ron Show on America One Radio. All right, welcome back. I am excited to have this lady on. Ever since I read her piece in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution last week, I put a little note to the side and I said, reach out to her. Let's get her on. Welcome to the show, Chitra Raghavan. Did I say your name right? You said it perfectly. Thanks for having me on, Ron. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you so much. Now, uh, it's it's my understanding that uh, you are not only a former journalist, uh, but now you're an executive coach to a lot of CEOs and C-suite executives. First of all, explain to me what a C-suite executive is, because I don't know if I may have been one at some point in time. <laughs> well, a chief strategy officer, a chief communications officer, the leadership team that typically reports to the CEO and is responsible for setting the tone and agenda and uh, the uh, goals for an organization or a company. Okay, so having been a former radio station manager and a senior vice president of programming for a cluster of radio, I feel like I may have fallen into that realm at some point in time. And I'd like to think, looking back, that uh, I, I took that position and those roles in particular to heart. I always tried to live by the golden rule as most folks say they would and as much as possible but let's dive into this conversation and hope that uh, uh even i come away learning something about it i want to start with some points that you made in this opinion piece and, and by the way did the atlanta journal constitution reach out to you or did you reach out to them how did this how did this writing come together well i actually reached out to them and the reason i wrote this op-ed is uh just for a little bit of background is as soon as i first uh read about fanny willis I was instantly sitting up and paying attention, both professionally and personally. Mm -hmm. So professionally, I was paying attention. As you mentioned, I was a former reporter for NPR and US News and World Report. I covered legal affairs. I'm now an executive leadership coach. I'm also a brand and narrative strategist. Mm -hmm. And so I was I was uh, taken with, uh, with Ms. Willis. And because I knew that she had both A, an important mission, mm -hmm. and a, B, a compelling narrative, right? Because even as many Republican leaders were cowering right before Donald Trump, here was this little known black female state prosecutor from Georgia, essentially standing up to a, a dangerous bully. So she captured my imagination as she did, I think, for many professional women around the world. And I put her on my radar screen because I knew that she was definitely someone to watch as a rising leader. 
And personally, I was paying attention because, as as you know, I was born in India and I came to the United States actually as a graduate student at the University of Georgia back in the day. So I've kept an eye on Georgia politics ever since. And I invited Willis to appear on my leadership podcast called When It Mattered. And that interview didn't work out. This was about a year ago, but I have followed her career closely ever since. And of course, last week, you know, came that big fall and it was a hard fall and it caught my attention as a leadership coach because I think it epitomizes in part this uphill battle that that dominant and ambitious uh, women leaders often face. And my last point is, Ron, that it's also a reminder to powerful female leaders like Willis that they have to be doubly cautious in their conduct so as not to invite this type of ugly scrutiny. And she she clearly wasn't cautious enough. Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, I've personally been on this roller coaster ride throughout this entire process. Uh, and when the allegations from the Trump team's defense counsel started coming out, I, again, I felt like the roller coaster really started taking uh, st- uh, steep turns and, and climbs and falls. And we're all just kind of breathless with each passing headline and starting to get a little exhausted from the ride. Like, uh, I think I want to get off. But, <laughs> but <laughs> I know how you feel. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, when I read the piece at first, I thought going into this, I go, OK, this is going to be a defense of Fonnie Willis. And no, I think you were very fair and somewhat in a, in a maternalistic sort of way, sort of stern with Fonnie and women in general. Yeah, definitely. I did get a little bit of heat about that because, you know, people are very protective of her uh, because she has risen to this level through probably some incredibly hard work. Mm -hmm. But honestly, you know, as I said in my piece, when you are in that position, you really have to be careful and you you can't make those types of mistakes. And she made definitely made an ethical mistake. Right. Because perception is reality, as I said. And, you know, she even if she didn't feel like she was doing something wrong, just the the impression it was conveying, mm. this kind of potential quid pro quo, uh, you know, the romantic entanglement. I mean, it was just, she obviously didn't put herself under the same kind of scrutiny that she would have any of her witnesses, for instance. Mm. And I think also in addition to the ethical lapse, there was this tactical mistake because she was taking on somebody incredibly powerful, who is a street fighter. And in doing so, she should have said, is there anything I need to be worried about myself, my team, uh, and 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 really been careful about what she was doing. You're right. I, I've I've said from the start that this this office needed to uh, act as if they were uh, a, a pack of nuns, uh, <laughs> nuns and priests, <laughs> and, and and you know fly right and do right and be Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and be squeaky clean about it because as you said they're taking on a thug and a band of thugs and uh, enablers and are going to use any opportunity to do exactly what they're doing, which is. I don't think necessarily to derail the case, but to delay it long enough that it comes after election, after he's sworn into office, and then we're waiting four more years, potentially, if that were to come. And then all of this work is for naught. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I didn't necessarily so much want to talk with you about the case. I wanted to uh, to drill in on uh, your perception, uh, writing this as a woman to a woman and for other women as well. Uh, we, we both know that African-American parents usually have the talk with their kids when it comes to interactions with law enforcement. I am a gay male. Obviously, most gay folks aren't raised by gay folks, so we don't get to have that same kind of talk. But I'm wondering, do 
mothers have this sort of talk with their daughters all the time, or is this just something that a mother who realizes their daughter is going to be driven and ambitious needs to sit down and have a conversation with them about? I think that mothers and fathers, right? There are so many yes. progressive men in this world, yes. in this country, who are very concerned about their daughters and, and put enormous effort into making sure that they survive in the world and, and thrive in the world. So I think it's definitely a conversation that moms and dads uh, need to have with their with their with their daughters and so i i wouldn't just say it's it's moms and um you know i happen to have two sons weirdly so uh, i haven't had to have that i have different conversations with them mm -hmm. uh, but i think that there's some really interesting things that uh, that uh, women should be made aware of really interesting studies and i could talk a little bit about that i mentioned one of them in my piece and and this is sobering but it's a conversation that must be had so that women can be tactical and and be able to navigate as you know so well put it these minefields that confront uh especially senior executive women but women of all stripes basically you know so in my op-ed i mentioned this one study that underscores these pervasive biases that women face in professional daily settings where networking and assertiveness are often viewed differently based on gender. And this was a University of Michigan and Carnegie Mellon research study. And it showed that while men benefit from networking with high status people, women actually lose status in the eyes of their colleagues and damage their careers because they are perceived as self-serving and not benevolent unless they couch it in those terms, unless they say, oh, I'm networking with this powerful person for the good of the organization, for this team. But if they're perceived at all as doing it for themselves, then they really suffer. And, and so the authors concluded that people typically don't like dominant and ambitious female leaders. And can you imagine that in this day and age mm -hmm. that there still is this pervasive belief, right? Well, I, I think we see this in so many subsets. I mean, I'm, I, I think back to to being a kid watching Larry Hagman on Dallas and his role, and then I think back to the role that uh, I can't think of her name, a Melrose place, the 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 the, uh, the the boss. I can't. I'm drawing a blank. But you know, she was the word bitch was was hurled around a lot, not just on the show, but from those who watched it. How she was so tactile and so cold and cutthroat and. All these derogatory, uh, you know, uh, uh, adjectives that were hurled at her, and Larry Hagman was seen as like this, this cunning and uh, and deft, and but he was he was no different. And then I, I think now to what Vice President Kamala Harris deals with, particularly from her ideological opposition, there's always the whispers of how she got to where she is, and none of none of the the none of that comes from a, a man like Donald Trump, who also has his proclivities when it comes to physical activity and emotional uh, entanglements himself. Definitely. And it's interesting that you use the word cold, Ron, because that is actually a very important word for women to understand. And, and I'll explain to you why okay. there, there are these, there's all of this landmark research that points to why it is that people typically don't like dominant and ambitious female leaders. And by the way, that's men and women as well. Women don't get a pass yes, on this. Yes, yes. And yeah, exactly. And so 
I want to talk a little bit about this research and the use of your word cold, which is so central to this conversation. Okay. So um, I had a conversation with my friend Christopher Graves. He's a noted behavioral science expert. He's founder of the company, The Resonance Code. And he pointed me towards some of these studies that were spear that have been spearheaded by the legendary uh, psychologist Susan Fisk of Princeton University and others. And what these studies have shown is that we basically access others across two axes. So when I'm meeting you and I'm interacting with you, the two words that I am measuring you on are warmth and competence, okay? Mm -hmm. So warmth is likability and accessibility. Competence is, includes things like intelligence, efficiency, power, and I kid you not, this goes back to the days of the caveman, which tells you what women are dealing with. Mm. When in the days of the caveman, the two main questions that caveman was facing when he was staring at caveman B was A, are you a friend or a foe, which is warmth? And B, if you are a foe, do you have the ability to kill me, which is competence? Mm. So what Graves says and that Susan Fisk and her colleagues have found, and by the way, these are dozens of studies uh, over the last 40 years, and they have found that these two attributes, warmth and competence, are still hardwired in us today, both in men and women. And it's essentially used to place who you are on some kind of schema. And here's the rub. What they have found is that there is a gender divide on how this warmth competence uh, scale happens, which comes to the detriment of competent le uh, women leaders and professionals. Because for women to be perceived as successful, you have to be seen as both warm and competent, but men, only have to hit one of those metrics, mm -hmm. okay? And it gets, and I'm going to mention one last thing, and then I, I'd love to get your thoughts. It gets worse because, as Chris Graves, Graves pointed out to me, when a man is perceived to be competent, in the absence of further knowledge, he is also deemed to be warm. But for women, it's a zero-sum game. So if women are strong, they are viewed as cold, getting back to your word, and competent and viewed as incapable of being warm. And the last big gotcha is, so she's like, oh, people don't see me as warm. You know, in order to rise up, I have to be warm and confident. Let me, you know, dial up my warmth. And But when she intentionally tries to dial up her warmth, as Hillary Clinton did, as others have done, other women have done, she is then deemed as incompetent. So in other words, you can't make up that gap. It's inversely correlated. And so if you're a woman, it often feels like you just can't win. And it's called the likability trap. And and all women have to navigate this in order to be successful. We're with Trisha Raghavan, a uh, former journalist, podcaster, uh, CEO, coach. Uh, and, and we're having a fascinating conversation about the perception of ambitious, powerful, dominant even women in the workplace and in culture. I'm going to pick up on that point you made. You brought up Hillary Clinton, and I want to discuss that when the Rancher returns on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back. We've got a little bit more time with Chitra Raghavan, who penned an op-ed in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution last week that I thought was very fair, but also very stern with regards to the Fonnie Willis soap opera drama. And we've had more news about that popping out over the weekend. Don't necessarily feel like we need to discuss that conversation so much more, but we are talking about how society and work culture and uh, political culture views women versus men, uh, particularly those with uh, drive and ambition. We were talking about uh, warmth and competence versus uh, having one or both. You, you mentioned Hillary Clinton, and I was thinking while you were having that conversation 
about the 2016 election cycle, because here you had two candidates, one who wasn't warm, but very competent, probably the most qualified person to run for the office who hadn't had it before. And then you had someone on the other side, a male who was neither warm nor competent. And yet, I mean, I know it was an uh, electoral college quirk, but it shouldn't have even been that close. How frustrating are outcomes like that? for women knowing that they have to overcome these deficits in perception. Yes, I'm really glad you mentioned that because in fact, Hillary Clinton has been the uh, topic of several of these research studies, by the way. And I'll, I'll, I'm gonna, um, I've got a blog that I'm, I'm wrapping up and I'll have it up in the next couple of hours cool. that lists a lot of these research studies, which I think that your listeners may be interested to read. Uh, and Hillary Clinton's uh, and how she was treated is definitely one of them. And in her case, the word cold was very much central to that entire portrayal of her in the news, on the late night talk shows, you know, oh, she's kind of like an icicle. Mm. It, it was just really, and those were just some of the less um, uh, terrible words that yeah. were terrible words yeah. that were employed against her. There sure. was so much rage against her, and you can see when you read these studies how she was described uh, in across the spectrum. And so I think that it it definitely. And by the way, one of the studies that I will post on my blog post says that female politicians get the worst of it, mm. absolutely the worst of it, and. You saw that the most extreme case of that, obviously, which ended in violence, was the Gabby Giffords shooting, right? Yes. But even in less serious ways, women, female politicians have a very, very hard time. Women like Kamala Harris, Hillary Clinton, and others. Can I ask, is, is that just a, a, an American situation, or does that happen across the world? Because we do see female political leaders ascend to the top in other countries. They have risen to the top, but I think these types of biases are inherent. And I think they are across the board, no matter what the culture, no matter, in fact, some cultures probably worse than other cultures. Mm -hmm. But what is surprising is that in our highly progressive culture, and let me just say that women have come an incredibly long way on mm -hmm. in boardrooms, in, uh, you know, in media, in all walks of life. So we don't want to not recognize the fact that we have come so far. But really, when you read some of this stuff, you realize how much further we have to go. Mm -hmm. I, I could sit here and, and dive into that a little bit more, but I want to go back to your uh, opinion piece in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution because you had some lessons for women in leadership that you wanted to share, and I'll just give the first four or five points here. Uh, you would say, here's what I would say to them. The microscope you will be under as a woman is infinitely more powerful and subjective than your male counterparts, which I think we've covered. Perception is reality. There's no getting around it. Act accordingly. A lesson I think Fonnie Willis could have learned or should have known from the jump. Uh, listen to your gut. If it feels wrong, it likely is wrong. Please don't do it. And I would like to think that someone as intelligent as Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade at this point, let's not just blame uh, the female here, would have had that red flag pop up in their mind. And I'm just surprised if that didn't happen. There are no secrets in the workplace. Word gets around. So if you want to start a love affair with a coworker, assume your colleagues will know and the last one I want to point to here is acknowledge that your actions will have seismic reactions for your colleagues, their families, their careers, and their paychecks. Do right by them. I keep thinking of Michelle Obama when she let the secret out that the most powerful people in the world are no smarter than you or I. And this comes back to my mind when I look at this entanglement with Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade because I'm utterly shocked that two people, two adults as educated and 
uh, career-driven as they are, as accomplished as they are, didn't think about the perceptions, didn't think about keeping at least their finances documented. Like I have a credit card that I use specifically for business purposes because it's easier to keep tabs on these sorts of things. And neither one of them thought that that's what they should do. Yeah. So, you know, in hindsight, it's really easy to look at this and say, what were they thinking? But really, if you saw that hearing, right, there was this very emotional period that they were going through, right? There, right? There was a breakup in his mind. She said it was already done. In her mind, it was imminent. So there was this huge well of emotion that I think was underlying all of the the stuff, the, the work that she was doing on the surface. And I'm sure that Wade was feeling the same way. And I think that, that those decisions were made somehow in that gray zone of probably you know, uh, sad, a lot of sadness probably, and the uh, idea of lost friendships. And there's a lot of emotion there that she hinted at that really didn't come out uh, in a, but I think that that's the subtext that I got from watching her. There was something going on there under the surface. And it's very easy in a situation like that, by the way, it happens time and time again, where somebody wants in a big case like this you want someone that you can absolutely trust as your lead prosecutor as your investigator and it's tunnel vision where you look look at the landscape of lawyers prosecutors out there and you go you know what this is the only person i can truly trust at this point in time and it's a compliment to him that despite their breakup she thought he was the one she would trust could trust with this very important case but really if you if you have to step back and say you know what i'm not thinking this properly there there are a lot of talented people out there that could help me that i could trust and i think that's where things kind of went seemed to go awry yeah and, and uh, i think there was the the hint of the cancer diagnosis that he was going through as well that sort of complicated it and it makes you think that you know there there may have been uh more of an emotional bond than even a physical bond because that's naturally where we all went our our minds went to physical entanglement and we didn't consider the emotional wouldn't you agree absolutely you you really hit the nail on the head it's just uh, there's this emotional drama that was going on that influenced these these decisions it's unfortunate that we're having to have this conversation because she has a job a task that is bigger than dealing with uh, being skewered in the public media for her personal life uh, and, and I'd like to think that that's not just something that a powerful woman in a role that maybe she didn't expect to find herself in, but is, has to deal with. Um, do, do you feel that some of this or, or, or even most or all of this has to do with her just being a woman and maybe even a woman of color? Not entirely. You know, it's a little bit of everything. I think that it can be true that you can both be targeted uh, as a woman, as a black woman, as somebody who is going after a very, very big target. Also, uh, to give the defense some credence, they had the right to challenge and to find out whether there was anything improper going on. So it's just how they went about it, I think, uh, the extent to which they were trying to tarnish her. Mm. But you know, one could argue that that's standard legal procedure, you know, that's what they would argue. Yeah. Hey, you know, this is how the legal system works. And we live in a country, we should be proud that we live in a country where we are able to challenge each other in court and let the truth come out. Yeah. So I think that can, that is true. And I think there's, it's also true that she did make 
an ethical lapse mm. in how she handled it. But it's also true that, as she pointed out, she is not on trial. Donald Trump is on trial. She's trying to bring him to justice. And this is part of the smoke and mirrors game. So it can, to to delay the, the case, as you said, or maybe derail it if in the best case scenario for him. Uh, so I think all of these things are true. Uh, they, they don't have to be, uh, you know, uh, an exception to each other. When the word perjury came up, I immediately thought about the Clinton Lewinsky scandal and his impeachment proceedings. And it wasn't so much about the sexual acts or the affair. It was about being able to keep grilling him until they found a way for him to perjure himself. Anyway, that's a conversation for another podcast altogether. Uh, Chitra Raghavan, thank you so much for joining me. I'm going to give everybody your website. We'll put it in the show notes. It is simply chitraragavan.com. Fascinating stuff that you provided for us today, that op-ed. I enjoyed it so much. We shared that. We'll have that in the show notes as well. And when you get that blog posted, we'll try and put that in the show notes for you uh, as, as well today. Thank you so much for joining me on The Ron Show. Thank you so much, Ron. It's been a real pleasure. All right, that'll do it for today. I want to thank you for listening however you do, whether it's on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, whether you listen via podcast. Follow us at RonShowATL on your preferred social media platform. Show notes as well at RonShowATL.com. Back tomorrow, 9 to 10 a.m. on America One Radio. Have a great day.